It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor. As always, with my man Rick Boring, we hit on a bunch of local topics, national topics, and occasionally a crazy story or two. We got a lot to get to, so let's get to it very quickly. And it's presented by Joseph Chevrolet. Rick? Skinny, the Reds rookie Nixon Zell is batting 267 with six doubles, two triples, and four homers in 28 games. He's recorded a 331 on base percentage, 10 points above the league average, with 20 runs and 12 RBI. He recently told reporters that he still felt there was a lot more he can do and that his goal is to be a 300 hitter. After seeing Nixon Zell play essentially a month's worth of games, are you buying stock in the Reds rookie, and do you believe he'll be a 300-plus hitter like he says? I'm buying stock for sure. I like him. I like him at the top of the lineup. I like the fact he's got some pop. I like the fact that he takes a walk. I don't know he's a 300 hitter. I, I, I think he takes a lot of strikes. He strikes out a little too much for my taste um, as far as being a 300 hitter. But, man, I, I really like him. And he's going to get better. I think, you know, for him, he sees that number now, right? And he's expecting probably, hey, I'm just going to go up and tear it up. Dude, you're in the bigs. Some guys do for a couple of weeks, and they find holes. And remember, I think the last time we talked about him, Rick, it was um, he was going through a little bit of a slump, and, and it was kind of almost like, all right, pitchers have adjusted to him. It's his turn to readjust. Will he readjust? And I think he's done that. I mean, he went through a stretch of what? I think um, five or six games of getting on base to start the first inning, the top of the first, or whatever the first, top or bottom of the first. Um, I, I think he did some really good things. I think he will continue. I think he is, in my opinion, He's a 285 to 290 hitter average-wise. That gets him to about a 350 on base. With the way he can get out of the ballpark, he could be a 450 slugging guy. I could see him being an 800 OPS guy. I am buying stock. I like him a lot. I'm with you. I'm definitely buying stock in Senzel. And I think I was probably lower on him coming into the season than a lot of people were. And the reason, I just... We've had so many guys come through right. the Reds You're organization. You're just waiting for the fail. Where it's like, you know, Austin Kearns, Brandon Larson, Jay Bruce, Todd Fray, all these different guys that were going to be kind of the next big thing or the five-tool prospect or whatever. And they never quite live up to the billing. Some of them had really productive careers, but they never really became that right. all-star caliber Perennial. Player. I mean, Jay Perennial. Bruce was an all-star. I mean, but they, yeah, they had perennial. their years. Todd Frazier obviously had moments, but yeah, right. They never put it together right. to be that franchise-type player that you could really build a winning club around. I don't know that Nixon Zell is that either at this point, but I do see a lot of things that I like. You mentioned a lot of them. The one reason I think he could be a 300 hitter his approach to the plate. You mentioned he takes a lot of pitches right now. Right. And at this point, a lot of them tend to be strikes. He finds himself behind in some counts. I think his eye for that is going to continue to get yeah, better. And if it does, I think he's got a shot. I think that's fair. I love the fact that he already has such a disciplined and patient approach at the plate. It doesn't feel like, it feels like Senzeli, even when he's taking pitches, it's almost like, all right, that's a pitch I can't handle. And then he's going to learn that, okay, that may be a pitch I can't handle, but when I got two strikes, I got to do something with it. Even if it's foul it off, I've got to put something on that. And I think he'll learn that. I think that's a learned trait for a quality hitter. And I do think he's a quality hitter. Uh, I, I think... There's a part of me that wonders, can he be a 20? I think you asked the question on one of the last podcasts, can he be a 25 to 30 home run guy? I don't think he can, but I can't discount that either. I, I, no, I think he's I, definitely the, up, the, the upside's really good. Home run guy. And if he's not, he's going to be a 45 double guy. 
or a 40 double guy and 10 triple guy and triple digits in, in all three power category guy. He has great speed. Yes. Um, and the other thing that's really stood out about him is defensively, he's been despite fine. the fact that he's made the move to center field right before the season, basically, he's been excellent. Correct. I haven't really seen an issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I has he not gotten to a ball or two that Billy Hamilton might have? Maybe. I, I mean, I, that I, goes I, for every single player in yeah, the major right. leagues. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm not sure so. else you're going you're to put out there that does it. He's, I think he's fared very, very well. I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed, and I think that this Reds offensive turnaround to some degree is some guys starting to do what we thought or hoped or expected. Hope there's not the word expected them to do. But I also think it's Nick Senzel at the top of the lineup has given you a solid everyday guy to put in there in that spot in the lineup, and he's getting the job done for the most part, and I think he's going to get better. You do wonder with his approach and taking pitches and being patient if playing alongside Joey Votto won't help him or maybe, maybe rub off on yeah. him some as he goes. That's one area that Joey Votto has definitely been elite during his entire career. No so. question. And I do like the fact that Sinzel's kind of hard on himself, right? That yeah. it's like, hey, hey man, I'm, I'm not satisfied with what I'm doing. That's good. I think it's great to hear, and I don't think it's lip service. Yeah. I think he seems like a real guy that he's going to tell you a, if it's A, and B, if it's B, and you may not like either one, and he may not like either one. He feels pretty grounded, but mm-hmm. it also seems like he's not real happy with how things have gone so far, which I think is a pretty good sign, because it's been a, I think by all all accounts, he's been fairly solid for yeah, a rookie. Yeah, I mean, if he'd have come up and hit 190, I'd have gone, okay, that I, I, that happens to guys. I'm not going to give up on him. He's not. He's come up and been a, honestly, what they needed, a guy at the top of the lineup to produce. Skinny, the Reds drafted a tall, lanky left-handed pitcher, Nick Lodolo, from TCU with the seventh overall pick in the Major League Baseball draft. In the second round, they took a power-hitting high school shortstop, Reese Hines, who will be moved to third base or first base from all reports. The Reds drafted another power-hitting high school third baseman in the third round when they grabbed Tyler Callahan. In recent drafts, the Reds have reached a little bit with their first-round pick in hopes they could sign him for less than the slotted value and attempt to pull more resources together for high-profile high school prospects in later rounds. Word is that won't be the case this year with Lodolo, who is expecting to seek full value. The Reds didn't back down, though, with their second two picks, as Hines and Callahan are both promising high school prospects that will likely ask for their full slot value or more to pass on playing college baseball. Do you like the way the Reds have approached this draft? It's going to show me one of two things, especially with the two, the second and third round guy. Either you know you can sign them or you know you couldn't. If you know you could sign them, then I think it shows that they're willing to pump the money into that portion of the program if you knew you couldn't and this happened many years ago guys won't remember him a guy named jeremy sowers out of louisville was a first round reds drafted him because at the time they didn't have any money to sign a guy so guess what they basically the the, the sowers family told them look you draft us it's going to cost you this much and if you don't pay us this much guess what we're going to do we're going to go to vanderbilt and pitch the reds knew it guess what the reds did anyway They drafted Jeremy Sowers. So I think when you do this, I think it will show you either the Reds know full well, we know what it's going to take to sign them, and we're going to do it. And if not, it shows you that, okay, there's still a little bit on the cheap going on here that despite the fact of some of the things they did in the offseason with uh, the trades and taking on more payroll, that if you're not willing to do this, then I don't know when when you continue to dig yourself out of a hole because – Their their drafts of late seem to be a little better than the drafts of you know 2005 to 2016 ish, and I'm going to document that at local12.com on Friday, looking back at some of those drafts. Um, But no, I I think for me, I I do. I mean, Lodolo was almost a no brainer. I mean, every mock draft had him going to the Reds uh, based on what they thought everybody else was going to do. He is the top rated pitcher in the draft. I do like college arms more than high school arms. Um, I think you have a better chance with those guys. It's just my opinion. Doesn't mean a high school arm doesn't pan out. Doesn't mean every college arm pans out. Um, 
but I, I do. I think I, I like the way they approach this draft in that regard. But like I said, if, if it shows you that eventually, you know, both Hines and Callahan say, uh, you, know, you know, they were never serious about signing us, and that's why we're not, well, then shame on the Reds. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because I think every team pretty much knows what they're allowed to spend going into the draft. Right. And, and if you go over that, then you're going to have to pay a tax. And I think we know the Reds aren't right. going to be but able the, to afford that. But the that point tax. is, sometimes you just go ahead and make that pick knowing I can't sign him and that's okay because I don't want to spend the money on that cat. Well, of course. But what the Reds have done in the past is with that first round pick, they've been like, okay, this guy shouldn't be drafted seventh overall. He's right. more like the 30th overall pick. We're going to take him because we can sign him for less than that slot value, which gives us more to work with in the second and third round. This year, it's it's like, hey, we're going all out with that first round right. guy. We want a guy that's almost major league ready. We're going to pay him the full slot or more to get him signed. But then they didn't change their strategy in the second and third round. They right. still went after that high profile high school guy. So it's interesting because now you're kind of in a situation where, well, you have three higher profile prospects to try to that sign. That you're going to have to pay for. Um, you maybe not may not be able to afford all of them, but you also have three different guys to choose from. Whereas in the past, it's like you didn't give yourself as much upside at the top of the draft but then you guaranteed that you were going to sign yeah. some higher-profile long shots in the second and third rounds. I like the idea of using that first-round pick to go all-in and Absolutely. try to get a guy that can change because what you're doing dude, in the next two to three years. Go to baseballreference.com and just look at guys drafted after the 15th round, 20th round, certainly after the 25th round. Yeah, there's a guy every few years. You're not getting it. I mean, th- those guys don't pan out. They're just roster fillers at Class A or Rookie League ball or fall ball or whatever. Baseball is such a weird sport it in is. general. I mean, guys no come doubt. from all over and they're and, all and at different stages. And especially this, you can draft the guy, but it doesn't mean you're going to sign the guy, right? right? I mean, he's got leverage. He's got three leverage points. Senior year of high school coming out. Um, third year of college, two leverage points. Third year of college coming out. And then finally got the leverage point when he's a senior. You just don't have a lot of leverage points along the way. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, with the high school guys, they have so long until they're going to actually be at the major league level. Right. That's so many different and things. It's such can go a crapshoot. It's still guys maturing physically and certainly maturing emotionally and mentally and having cash in your pot. I mean, there's just, it's so interesting to watch how guys develop. I think with the major league draft, we know less about it than any of the no other doubt. major league sport, no doubt. professional sports, I should say. And so it's hard to really get excited or down or one way or the other because you don't really know. But I like it. Have a fly. I mean, the one thing, and everybody can make fun of Moneyball, the book, and I've read it, reread it three or four times. I still love the book. Um, whether you like what the Oakland A's did over those years, they did have a philosophy. Here's what we're doing and why we're doing it. As long as you do that, I mean, it may be the case that they decided right, we can sign Nick Lodolo, we cannot sign a second or third round pick, and maybe for them it was, we're just going to draft these guys just in case, but we, we know we, it doesn't matter who we draft. We could draft Rick Broering, and Rick could ask for the moon. We, Rick could ask for $15,000, and we can't even afford that at that point. So, no, I, as long as you have the you have a philosophy, it's not a catch as catch can of well, all right, that guy's a good guy to get. I don't know what his signability is, and oh, that guy's a good guy to get. I don't know what his signability is. I think then you really strike out. Yeah, I think you almost have to feel like though one of these first three picks aren't going to sign no, based yeah, on maybe. how yeah, high yeah. profile all three guys and that, are. And, that, and that's fine. That's fair. But if you get Lodolo and he pitches in the big leagues within two and a half years, which is probably safe to expect if he's this far along, then I think you did a really good job. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's like, like I was saying before, you don't know a lot about the drafts going in. You don't know a lot about the prospects, so it's hard to get real excited. But I will say, looking at a guy like Lodolo, who looks like everyone's saying he's probably the most the most professional ready arm in the draft, that it's kind of exciting to see him take a guy. No, like and that. I'm drawing a blank. There was a kid from Louisville from a couple of years Nick ago. Nick Bennett. That, yeah. No, no. Oh. I, he was a pitcher from Mulwer. Yeah, no, yeah. no. There was a kid from Louisville a couple of years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, that's it. That was either the he was the second pick I think in that draft, and he was drafted. 
because he was both a really good hitter and pitcher in, in college. And even when I was watching, I'm like, I wonder what he'll be in, in the pros. Whether he tried to hit a little bit, didn't, and now he's pitching really well. And I wonder how the Twins were like, all right, let's just take a flyer. I mean, Hunter Green could be that. I mean, Hunter Green still, if it doesn't work out as a pitcher. Could end up being an outfielder. Could end up being a, a position player, for goodness sake. So um, it, it is. It's such a crapshoot. And you look at some of these other guys, just, just go ra- click on a random first-round guy. And yeah, you may find the guy that pans out, or you may see the guy's name that you know today. Go to another round where you don't know who that guy is, and you're looking, you'll see, man, he flamed out in double-A ball? Really? That guy did? It happens. It's hard. It, it's very, It's to me, it's the most difficult no doubt. to evaluate. No doubt. Skinny, it feels like every week we're talking about Cincinnati's basketball roster, and that's because every week it seems to change pretty drastically <laughs> at this point. Last week we talked about Jaron Cumberland withdrawing from the draft and returning to UC. Since then, John Brandon has landed a commitment from incoming freshman point guard Micah Adams-Woods, grad transfer point guard Chris McNeil, and graduate transfer wing Javen Cumberland, cousin of Jaron Cumberland. With all 13 scholarships accounted for, UC's roster appears to be set for the first year of the John Brandon era. My question for you is what grade do you give John Brandon and his staff for the roster they've reassembled here late in the process after being hired i'll give him an a minus i mean i you know some of it was contingent on a decision that was out of his control right jaron cumberland was out of his control i mean yeah it was one of those you hold your breath and you hope he comes back um but i think when you're looking at how, the roster you put together he's on it he is on, he's it. on it there's, there's no question <laughs> he at least felt like I could come back Correct. to this coaching staff. Correct. It didn't make him feel like, oh, there's no way I'm going back to school. Yeah, the grad transfer point guard wasn't isn't great, and his numbers aren't great, and he's bounced around, obviously. I mean, he played at two Division One schools, sat out at a third, played at a junior college. Um, but he was, he was pretty productive at stop. I'm going to see if I get this right. At stop number two two along the way, I believe, at New Mexico. Um, yeah, average a little shy of 10 points, you know, three or four assists a game. Uh, you know, on this team, I think you and I agree, a point guard is in name only because you're still playing through Jaron Cumberland. You're stupid if you don't, correct? And John's style is obviously different, so he may not always play through Jaron Cumberland. He wants to maybe push the pace. But you at least have a veteran point guard that's that's played Division One college basketball. I mean, he he's done some things at that level to play, and so there's something to be said for that. And um, was he uber successful? No, but was he a bench warmer? No. The, the other thing to keep in mind there is John just went through last season at NKU where he had Zanai Robinson right. from Norfolk State, a graduate transfer point guard. From a, even a lesser level than NKU is, right? Right, but you think about sort of the team he had. He had best player in school history, Andrew McDonald, right. already coming back. He had a talented team around it that was – put together well that had a lot of chemistry already and he did a good job of fitting in a guy that was brand new had him for one year and he got a lot of production out of him so that would encourage me a little bit that at least he understands sort of the feel for how to get that guy enough minutes while also keeping him confident and playing yeah. other guys ahead of him yeah and i think the other thing too is two of the other freshmen they have the the point guard the other point guard they got and um and davenport they're not they're a year out of college, a year out of high school. They played a prep. They each played at a prep school. They, right. they got a prep school year under their belt. So in theory, more physically mature, right? A another older. year, right? And they've been through better competition, probably playing prep school than just high school basketball. So you've got that. And David Cumberland is going to at least give you some punch off the bench. I don't know how much, but I, I think, think he gives you some punch off the bench. Yes. Are we sure he doesn't start? Um, maybe, maybe pushes for it. I I think there's a chance he a decent chance he starts on this roster. Um, Jaron Cumber or Javen Cumberland is interesting. I think uh, you sort of compare this because we have a, a great local example that just went through with Xavier and Travis Steele, where he right. had to reassemble that roster. He brought in three graduate transfers to sort of piecemeal roster, and we're sort of seeing a similar thing here right. with John Brannon. 
And I feel like UC probably did something similar to what Xavier did, whereas you had Zach Hankins, that's probably your Javen Cumberland. He's probably going to play legit minutes for you and play a significant role close on to this double team. digits. Yeah, close to double digits. Yeah. And then the other two guys, I think they're bodies to, to take yes. up some minutes. I don't think you expect a lot of production for them. At times, they may make you pull your hair out because they just aren't quite this level of player. But at the same time, you need you needed somebody yes. who could give you minutes, and they and, will be able you to do, do that. You do have a point guard that started, what, he started 19 games at New Mexico, started a handful of games at Western. Um, again, bounced around. That's a little troublesome, I guess, to some degree. But he yeah. is a grad transfer, so he found the time to, to go get his degree and be grounded enough to do those things. And, you know, it's not like a guy you're looking up and going, well, man, he only averaged 2.3 points and 1.1 assists and didn't play but eight minutes a game. No, he started on in a pretty decent program. Yeah, and uh, the the big man from Valpo, Soroyo or yeah. Soroye, um, he's he's seven foot tall. He's like two hundred and seventy pounds. Now, will he give you defensively what you've been used to and and what Nizier Brooks gave you? Certainly not. But if you're talking about on the offensive end, I'm not so sure he's not better than what UC's had at the center, including right. Nizier Brooks, because he he catches the ball, he's really coordinated, he can finish around the basket with either hand, he runs the floor pretty well. Now he's not quick laterally, and teams are going to eat you alive in ball screen situations when he's on the court probably. But in terms of finding a big body who could give you some minutes, exactly. rebound a little bit, and finish around the basket, I think he can do that at a level of what you had already on the roster. Correct. Make up for the guys that you were losing when you're talking about a guy like Aleel Sasemi. Yeah, no, I. that's the thing. For, for all the hand-wringing over who entered the transfer portal, your biggest loss, obviously, is nice here, Brooks. And, and I think you can come close to making up for that. The other guys, did you really lose yeah, much? And people were really high on Logan Johnson. I understand that I, he had some potential, but he certainly Cumberland wasn't better than yet. Logan Johnson as we sit here today. As we yes. sit here today. Yes. Okay. Now, different positions. You, yes. You need a point guard, but I think you found guys that are capable of handling the ball for you. Yes. And I think for the most part, you're going to put the ball in Jaron Cumberland's hands and say, kind of do your thing. Here. Correct. The the interesting thing with Javen Cumberland, I wonder how much does, like, at, at Oakland last year, he had the Horizon League team because the best player on their team was a power forward, Correct. Xavier Hills-Mays. Who you remember, for those Xavier fans, remember him against Xavier, he was outstanding. Right, but every team usually had to use their biggest player right. to guard him in the Horizon League. So in terms of wing defenders, Javen Cumberland faced everyone's best wing defender. I mean, when you look back to NKU, he faced Jalen Tate, Tate right? and Trayvon Faulkner in the games. So I wonder how much will it change for him getting to face like a third or fourth defender on most of these American level teams. But at the same time, American American conference level athletes, the third or fourth defender might be as good as the top defender you were facing in the Horizon League. I'm interested to see how much that discrepancy plays out, whether that makes Agreed. a difference for him or not. Agreed. All right, Skinny. ESPN's Bill Barnwell listed 233 players who could win the NFL MVP in 2019. 233, by the way. How about... How about the guys he didn't name? Who did he not name? <laughs> he broke position groups down into categories, and his fa- and his favorite in the middling veteran quarterbacks group, which also included Ryan Fitzpatrick, I love Joe the Flacco. Group, the middling veterans quarterback group. It's great. It's, it's a great fantastic. group. Yes, it included Ryan Fitzpatrick, Joe Flacco, Eli Manning, Casey Keenum, and Colt McCoy. Colt McCoy. You know who the favorite was? 
None other than Cincinnati Bengals quarterback Andy Dalton. I give him that over those hacks. Barnwell wrote the following about Dalton. All of these guys are extreme long shots, of course. I'd say Dalton because the Bengals' offense was averaging 27.7 points per game during the first half of the season before Dalton and A.J. Green went down injured. And Tyler Eifert. He forgot to mention that. But that yes. would have been the fourth highest average in football if Cincinnati been able to keep it up. The Bengals also might be more competitive than people think in a division in which the Ravens and Steelers lost talent and the Browns, who admittedly added talent, were still only 7-8-1 and a year ago. While it's extremely unlikely Andy Dalton is going to win the MVP skinny, would you put him at the top of a preseason list that includes Fitzpatrick, Flacco, Manning, Keenum, and McCoy? It's not even debatable. I wouldn't even include Fitzpatrick, Flacco, Manning, Keenan, and McCoy. Really? No. Well, I mean, obviously none of those guys are favorites, and neither is Andy Dalton. But in Correct. terms of that that group, if one of them is going to come out of that Andy. group where someone's surprised, you think clearly the best? Clearly, it's not I, even close. You don't think Flacco had? No. Really? No. I mean, a lot to prove. Dude, he went through a lot with the Ravens, and they they just said enough. Enough. We're going with a guy who can't throw the ball a lick. I know, but I thought we're going to tell our offense around the runner, and then the runner this year decided. Oh, wait, I got a new playbook? I'm supposed to learn that? But I don't think the Broncos are terrible. I think they're awful. Really? I think they're awful. Awful. I don't... I don't awful. I mean, they didn't have a quarterback. Awful. With a quarterback that's confident, awful. you think they're still, still terrible. Still awful. Just still awful. I think the Bengals, because of the new offense, because you've... And look, some of this, has, you have to have offensive line play the way you're hoping, right? The fact you've made these changes, you're expecting three new starters, at least in three new spots, to do some some things. You led the AFC in rushing last year with Joe Mixon. Can you imagine with a better offensive line what you might be able to do? And then so much of what they want to do on offense is predicated off play action. So much that if Joe Mixon runs the football and if Andy Dalton can handle the ball, and it's it's an art. I mean, play action passing is more of an art than people think it is. Um, if he can do that, I think he's got a chance for a big year. MVP, no. But ahead of that group, absolutely. Because I, I would say again, when the, when all hands were on deck last year, that offense was really good. It was it was pretty good. It was really especially good. in the second half of some games. Like, yes, they were inconsistent early, but when they turned it on late in games, they were well, they had half. I mean, even like the, the well, they had the first half against Baltimore, and then Baltimore stopped blitzing, and then they, they changed things up, and the Bengals went into a little bit of a shell, but still scored thirty four points that game. The Atlanta game, the offense won the game for them. I mean, Atlanta could have scored at will on that Bengals defense. Um, no, it's not even close. It's not, I can't even believe he would put Fitzpatrick, Flacco, Manning, Keenan, McCoy in anybody's list. Well, I, I think I like Bill Barnwell too, and I like his work. He's very clever, he's I, very smart. I, I like to too. read him, but I'm saying no, sir. No. Well, I mean, I think the idea here is obviously I none know, of these guys little, are going to. Little, it is a little tongue in cheek on his part, right? The, for certain. What was the group called again? I got to read Middling it. Middling veteran quarterbacks group. All right, that's 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 a fair group. Yeah, but that's I, a fair group. But I like the way he argues for it. Is that like if any of these? I mean, look look at Ken Anderson when when he won MVP the year before that he yeah. was like six touchdowns to twelve interceptions well, or something. Not not only that, the year that he won MVP, the very first game of the year, he threw three first quarter interceptions, got pulled for Turk Turk Schoner. Turk Schoner won the game. Forrest Greg put him back in the lineup the next game. Kenny Anderson. And he started the rest of the year was MVP. People so. thought Kenny was done. Right, you're right. So I, I mean, was one of them. So this is like kind of an interesting look at like a group of guys who everyone thinks is pretty much done. Most of these guys couldn't lose their job this year. I've never thought Colt McCoy was, let alone done. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, Flacco, yes. Keenum, Flacco. Keenum's in the same group as McCoy. 
Yeah, McCoy's like, it's almost like he's the outlier of why is Colt McCoy even on this freaking list? I would agree, but Fitzpatrick, Flacco, Manning, and Dalton, I think are all kind of in that same group where they could all lose their yeah. job within the next year Correct. or two. Correct. Or even for, for Manning this year, right? But they all have had enough juice at some point that if their team somehow puts together a crazy season that's I can't unexpected. I see the Giants doing that without OBJ. I can't either. I don't see the Bengals doing it in this division, I, but. I don't know, man. You've got, if it does happen. Here's the thing I would tell you, and I'm not trying to be pie in the sky here. And this is always a big if. If Tyler Eifert's healthy, he's a huge bonus. A.J. Green back. You have two potential 1,000-yard receivers. You have the leading rusher in the AFC. It's a pretty good place to start. And, and you upgrade your offensive line. That's a pretty good place to start. For a, what is it again? A veteran. Hang on, what is it again? Middling a veteran, veteran quarterback. quarterback group. Group. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. For that group. And if Yasiel Puig has a career year, and if Joey Votto bounces uh, back, okay. and if... There's no Scooter if on, doesn't get injured. There's no if on Joe and Mixon, if, though. Joe Mixon was the leading rusher in the AFC. I know. I'm just saying. We've we've Hang lived on, off t- a lot t- of ifs t- in this season. Tyler Boyd was a 1,000-yard receiver. A.J. Green would have been if he had not gotten hurt. So... Yeah, look. I, I mean, the Bengals are going to be a competitive football team, I think, next year. I, I don't see I, I, I don't see them being a playoff football team. All right, fair enough. We'll talk about that more as we yeah, watch. Yeah, that's not a conversation no, to not. have right that's, now. That's a, that's a tough one on OTAs in May or June now. <laughs> Carson Palmer will be inducted as the 16th member of the Arizona Cardinals Ring of Honor, even though he only spent five seasons with the NFC West team. In a recorded FaceTime with Cardinals President Michael Bidwell, Palmer made a comment the summer taken as a shot at the Bengals as he said, quote, I wish I would have gotten there earlier, as you know. Regardless of whether or not Palmer was taking a shot at the Bengals, his displeasure with the organization has been well documented previously. So my question is, do you think of Carson Palmer as a Bengals great? In other words, he the, the argument is he thinks he should be in the Bengals ring of honor, which, which they don't, they don't have. Don't have. Right, right. Um, but if he they did have close. one, no. would he be in it? No. I don't see, see it no, either. No, not even close. I could give you 25 guys before. You know what? You've, you've given me a column idea now. What? I could give you 25 guys off the top of my head probably before I get you to Carson Palmer, and then there'd be other guys in the conversation at that point. Thank you. I thought I was I like be Carson a- Palmer. No, I like – look, Carson Palmer – for a period of time, lived up to why the Bengals drafted him first overall, in yes, my opinion. I agree. He in showed for about two or three years the, yeah. the, that he was the MVP caliber quarterback that could run a franchise I think at that he level. did, in, in his defense, and I don't blame him for this, I think he got tired of the Chad, and certainly then at that point, the T.O. nonsense. I think he was a poor leader who just didn't was, handle adversity at all. It's not his quality. All. It's just not no, his quality. it's not, and he didn't handle adversity well, at all. Well, in defense, his coach should have helped him with the Chad T.O. circus. His coach, his GL, everyone Somebody. in the organization should be helping everybody in the Bengals organization for the last 30 years. Well, yeah. Obviously, there, there's, there's been a ton of dysfunction, and Carson Palmer is not in the wrong that he wanted out, and not, is not in the wrong with the things he says about the organization. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about Bengals greats, there were guys who overcame all that stuff no and were still great players who weren't mental midgets like he was and had to go leave the way he did. He's to me, he's one of the most overrated athletes no, in Cincinnati sports history. No, I'm going to give you one, and you're going to kill me for it, and so are the people listening to the podcast. Boomer Esiason is, and I like Boomer I a lot. I agree with that, too. I like Boomer a lot, and he did do a lot he came, to he get was, you to a Super Bowl. That's the thing. He was there at the right time. Correct, correct. I like Boomer. I always liked his candor. Andy Dalton could, could have, have done days. the same thing Boomer Esiason I, did if he I, played at the same era. I think he could have, too. And so for Carson Palmer, look, he them drafting him first overall, I can say this. It was worth it. It wasn't like, oh, man, you you. They didn't make the wrong pick. Correct. You made the right pick, and he had his moments, and he had his years, and um, all of those things. But when you talk about a great, 
I can name a bunch of other guys I'd put ahead of him. Totally. I think that's the perfect way to frame it. He in, in no way was responsible for any of the dysfunction or what happened to the Bengals during that era. And I mean, obviously, the Kimo Von Olhoffen game right, is that's, the yeah, biggest that's what it, if. Yeah, it's not his fault. Yeah. In franchise history. It's a sad thing for him. But at the same time, there's no way I would list him as a Bengals green. Not a chance. Agreed. The NCAA Plain Rules Oversight Panel approved moving the three-point line to the international basketball distance of 22 feet, Yay. one and three-quarter inches in men's basketball. Committee members recommended the change after receiving positive feedback from the annual rule survey from coaches whose teams competed in the 2018 and 2019 NIT, where the international three-point distance was used on an experimental basis. Teams in the 2019 NIT averaged 23.1 field goal attempts in the tournaments from behind the arc, compared with 22.8 three-point attempts in the 2018-19 regular season, so it went up Slightly. Yep. The three-point shooting percentage of teams in the 2019 NIT was 33% compared with their regular season average of 35.2%. difference. The question is, do you like the NCAA's decision to move the three-point line back to international distance? Yeah, you and I talked, right, about the NBA three-point line of, of find the sweet spot of where you're just below 33%. Because 33% in theory is the sweet spot. It's that's a wash. Yep. That's a wash of a 50% two-point shooter. Um, so based on the analytics... At the college level, at least, it sounds like that distance is right at the 33% mark. And uh, I like it. I don't want the game to become a game of horse. I know you like the game of horse. I don't like the game of horse in basketball. I like the fact, look, I'm, you know, I'll use it. If, if the three-point line is there and it's short and it's going to make my offense better, as a coach, I'm going to use it. I'm going to utilize it. But as a, as a fan and as a journalist, I don't like it. doesn't mean I like it. I like this. I, I think this is a good idea. And again, I think for uh, if, if you find out that in five years, guys are starting to make that at a 35% clip. Move it again. Move it again. Yep. No, I could. I, I love this. And I'm I'm totally in on with what you say. I like space and pace. I like guys moving the ball. I like how pretty the game is to I watch when guys too. whip it around and shoot threes as to, at a high level. As opposed to a guy standing in each corner, a guy standing on each wing, guy going downhill to a kick. Yeah, exactly. So I, I like the way the game is moving and the way it's evolved. At the same time, I also miss the fact that there was a little more diversity in the game with guys who could score in, in the mid-range, in the right. post with seven footers, um, teams running a few more things to get closer looks to the basket yeah, and guys tra- challenging for dunks at the rim there's there's way way fewer dunks now than there's ever yeah been. i'll ask you this um the mid-range game is gone for the most part in basketball but let it me isn't it isn't it isn't it is you're right moving this back to where now this becomes i don't want to say a luxury shot because at 33 percent, it's still a good shot right yes but maybe now the 15 to 17 footer that you're making at a 58 percent clip mathematically is a better shot because you're making it at a higher rate than if you extrapolate well, the three-point percentage. I mean, had they been shooting at a 58% clip, they already would have kept it as a big part. The problem is most guys aren't shooting it at a 58%. No, clip. well, and may, maybe because you're, you're trained as a player now that if I'm at the 17-foot level... Well, this is a stupid shot to take. Let me either back up or drive into traffic, whatever. And that's the reason for it. But I also think if you look at like the NBA playoffs this year and you look at some of the elite guys, Kevin Durant went on a crazy spurt there before he got injured where right. he was scoring a ton of points, doing a ton of mid-range assassinations. I mean, just right. dominating guys in the mid-range. Kawhi Leonard is a big mid-range type guy. Giannis Antetokounmpo does a lot around the rim, but he also, when he expands his game, it's in the mid-range. It it's the not mid-range. three-pointers. You're right. You're right. So there, a lot of the elite guys use the mid-range. Kobe always did it. Jordan always did it. It's never been gone from the game. The problem is, it is a tough shot. It is one where it's it usually takes some of the elite of the game. That's, to that's perfect the, you, you literally it. just named the elite of the game today, I, right? In the elite, those are the guys you right. think Larry, of. Larry Bird, great mid range guy. We're the right? best at yeah, it, right? right? So the problem is, is it's difficult to become 
consistently great at that shot. So I think guys that can figure that out will continue to do it. I don't know that moving the three-point line back changes it much but i do think it's a good i, I think it will in, increase driving i think it'll increase a few more dunks yeah yellow more spacing yes uh, and so and again guys will just shoot a few you know if you're shooting 30 percent as opposed to 34 percent you're gonna drive it a little bit more and i think that's what they needed to get to they need it to be 33 percent or below you can't have teams sh- the entire league shooting above 33 percent you know up up at 35 percent is just way too high for the entire country to be shooting agreed real quickly one other part of the rule changes were the fact on an offensive rebound the shot clock resets to 20 as opposed to the current number um i think i like it love that there's no reason you need to get especially in late where this really affects you in in late game situations yeah where a guy you have to take a shot clock shot at 52 seconds up one and you get the offensive rebound and then you're able to milk another 35 off yeah this just adds more excitement in those situations and then for the rest of the game there's no reason and only enabled coaches who really really want to slow the game down to a halt which i in my opinion isn't good for the game you know me i'm not a big shot clock guy i kind of wish it would always go away but if you're going to do it this way i i'm okay with this I, i i don't need to be reset to 35 if you're going to 35 it's because in theory it's going to take eight or nine seconds maybe to get the ball into your offense yeah i mean let's be honest if you get an offensive rebound after just running a full possession or not whatever, whatever. if you get an offensive rebound the defense is usually in scramble mode Correct. you're going to find a good shot within a, the next yeah, few seconds rotation, right unless you are deliberately trying to slow the game down to a halt yeah so agreed, agreed. i i really like that rule all right, Skinny, switching gears again to boxing now. I don't hit on boxing that? a whole lot. Andy Ruiz became the first Mexican heavyweight champion ever Saturday night when he stopped Anthony Joshua in the seventh round. Joshua was a 15-1 to favorite going into the fight, making it a massive upset in the world of boxing. My question for you is, do you buy Andy Ruiz as a legitimate heavyweight champion, and did the fight say more about Ruiz or Joshua, in your opinion? I buy him as a heavyweight because he is a heavyweight. Right, well, let's just, first of all, let's break down... <laughs> Can you think of a more, in terms of just like visual, like aesthetically, yeah. can you think of a bigger upset that you've seen where one guy totally looks the part and the other guy just doesn't at all? Buster Douglas and Tyson. Buster Douglas got even fatter. He wasn't really even fat when he fought Tyson, but it's still, Tyson was so chiseled in his day. But anybody up against him looked like they were going up against Granite. But this was, for those that may remember, Butterbean-ish. Butterbean was way bigger than Ruiz, way flabbier, obviously, than Ruiz. But he's also taller, too. Correct. Right? Like, Ruiz Correct. is not tall. He's like 6'1, one, right? 6'2? Right. And Josh was 6'6. Six, six, six. Yeah, 6'6. Six, I mean, six. um, no, I, I, I don't know if it makes him a legit heavyweight champ. I will say this. Dude took a punch without bleeding, and maybe that's just pure luck. Maybe he slipped enough that it didn't affect him. He did get knocked down, what, the one time? Was that round two, round, round three? Round three, which maybe one of the best rounds of boxing I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, then the fact that he knocks Joshua down numerous times, one that didn't look like it was all that much of a punch, but the few after the third time he got knocked down, I'm like, dude, how can he get back up? And he looked also winded. I mean, I thought the fight said more about Joshua almost being out of condition, out of shape, and he's... He's cut. Something was up with Joshua. Yeah. I mean, he he never got his feet back after he knocked got knocked down that second time, or for even the first time, really. The second time was through the ropes, right? That was yeah. the one through the ropes. Yeah, that was the vicious yeah. one. But the first yeah. one, he just kind of got pushed down. Yeah, it looked, looked like, like, like almost like on, on the top of his head. Yeah, and he never seemed to sort of get back into the fight mentally yeah. after that point. And it was weird because it didn't seem like he was hit all that no. hard yet. Did I, he, I don't. Did he throw it? You almost wonder, like, was he scared of Wilder? Wilder's out here telling, <laughs> saying he wants to kill people in the ring. Like, he said, "I'm, I'm good. You know what? I'm gonna bet against me on fifteen to one. Somebody help me." I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of crazy. Ruiz, 
His, the reason I just don't know if I can believe in him as a legitimate contender going forward is because he was eating way too many punches. And granted, impressive, impressive chin. No doubt. To be able to take, I mean, the first time he got knocked down was legitimate. He looked like the, it looked like the fight might be over well, after he got up. He was I, still stumbling. I thought it was for a second. And then he continues to eat punches through the rest of the fight. His, his, he sort of plays a cat and mouse game where he leaves himself open, waits for you to get that one good punch where you really sort of leave yourself out there. Takes and he, it, takes it, and he and just then comes delivers, back at you with yeah, delivers back. The best part of his fighting style is he throws haymaker combos. Oh, dude, it's it's almost probably technically so unsound. It is because it's almost like he's swinging sideways at people. He comes over the top yeah. at you with some overhand rights. I mean, like it is a unorthodox fighting style. It's fun to watch. But was, yeah, in heavyweight boxing, boxing in general, I grew up in that era where boxing was big, and I enjoyed boxing. I don't watch it very much anymore, but maybe something like this. You know, they're calling the Mexican Rocky, right? All that stuff, which <laughs> is kind of cool. It's appropriate. Which is kind of cool. Maybe that does invigorate the sport a little bit. It was it was, it was, was an interesting one to watch because if you'd have told me it was like the pickup basketball game, I'll take you and you and you. Oh, I got to take you. All right, I'll take you, your flabby body. Come on and play with me. And then he's the best guy. That's what it felt like. Well, and we've talked about this before. In boxing, it's at its best. It 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 adds the excitement greatly when the heavyweights are correct good and they're still Absolutely. in the heavyweights. You think about this year in boxing so far. We've had two major boxing stories that captivated the entire country that made it to sports talk radio for right. multiple days on every station. And the first one was a heavyweight fight between Wilder and Fury. Yep. The second one now is a heavyweight fight between Ruiz and Joshua. And now you've got a couple storylines going forward that will sustain the rest of this year. Exactly. These guys are going to rematch. Uh, you're going to see what happens with those other two guys going forward. They each have fights later this year. Uh, I think our Fury has one coming up in July. Does I believe. Okay. So there is this is an exciting time, I think, for boxing and for a sport that a lot of people have said was dying or is dead. It's all about the heavyweights and the storylines at the heavyweight level. And right now we have some good ones. Here's the old cynical aunt, cynical, cynical man in me that makes me feel like it was fixed just because it continues to have your interest. That's awful to say. Watching it, it didn't look it other than the first well, time he Josh, got knocked down. Other than the first time he got knocked down. It did look like he was throwing the fight. You're not wrong about that. I mean, it was odd how detached he looked yes, the yes. entire fight after the third round. Yeah. And I don't know if really he just got dazed that much and he realized, like, I can't knock this guy out and paid payday coming payday coming man it was means well it's going to be a huge payday when those two guys link back up no doubt all right skinny we've got one more uh off the beaten path question here and i'll just ask the question first and read you two stories right okay the question is who parties harder spanish soccer teams or cincinnati djs okay so we'll start with the Spanish soccer teams. After winning on Saturday to earn promotion to the sixth tier of Spanish soccer, Esportu Alanca decided to celebrate with a stripper in the locker room. Love it. Judging by the video, in which the team seems more embarrassed than anything, nobody ran the idea by the players first. Indeed, according to Diari de Girona, a local paper, some of their mothers were in the locker room at the time. Ooh. The celebration was organized by Francesc Romero. Uh, you know, this really wasn't a great story for me to read with all these names. Yeah, I, I, didn't, say, yeah. I didn't get pronounced. Skip through it. Yeah. The club second secretary who said not only were the players unaware but nobody knew of his plan Romero has since apologized to the town mayor and the team captains quote the atmosphere was very festive nobody went too far Romero said there was cava a white wine laughter and joy but the stripper made her spectacle calmly and when she finished she dressed and left everything is normal did they tip her or I I, I, I don't know I if think mom maybe the on, moms were stuffing you slip one in a g-string for her? I don't know. Let me read you the second story, and we'll yes. see which one you think goes harder. 
A DJ at a Kentucky high school's project graduation was arrested Sunday after authorities say he was drunk at the event. Oh, boy. An arrest citation says Dennis Ray Rhodes, which if you go by three names and I you're a DJ, no question. that's appropriate, of Loveland, Ohio, was charged with drug and alcohol-related crimes during the event at Oldham County High School. You're familiar with that. I am, County. down by Louisville. The Oldham County Sheriff's Office said it received several complaints from bystanders accusing Might be a dry Rhodes county, of, too. It is, I think, <laughs> of being intoxicated around hundreds of students. Deputies said he was slurring his speech, staggering, and smelled strongly of alcohol. Deputies say Rhodes would admit to law enforcement he was drinking vodka during the event, and they found it in a sports drink bottle. He was also possessing a marijuana vape device with residue <laughs> inside. Rhodes was charged with public intoxication, drinking in public, and possessing drug paraphernalia. Project Graduation is a program which provides adult-supervised alcohol-free activities after students does. graduate. How man! Who parties harder? I, the Spanish soccer team with moms and strippers in the post-game see, locker room. I, I'm going to go DJ only because it feels like the Spanish soccer team guys were a little embarrassed that she was in there with moms around. They didn't really yeah. party. See, if you'd have partied hard, you'd have had moms sidle up next to you. And go watch what I'm about to do. This chick. <laughs> if, if mom, mom if mom, is it okay if I take the take your twenty and put it in the g-string? Mom, here's a stack of hundreds. Make it rain. Go ahead. <laughs> exactly. Can, can you just see exactly. Brenda, my mom, just in the in the strip club making it rain? Yeah, it wouldn't work. My out. mom's a really really nice woman yep i'll be honest i think i could go to a strip club with my mom i think she, she's super nice super supportive i think she'd she would probably not be real very comfortable would, with would, it would but. she blush at the potential lap dance for you uh i mean i don't know if i'd go that far okay but i think my mom is so supportive she'd be like really supportive of the women dancing like hey good for you to Artful. be that confident there are there are there are artists yeah right they're yeah. artists so i don't think it'd be all that bad yeah i'm gonna go dennis ray man hey dennis ray, dennis of his ray name, and the fact that he realized you know what man i'm gonna knock a couple out here and i'm gonna get my buzz on while i do this do he you, just went a little too far as well as he probably kept sipping it as he was doing it really didn't realize until all of a sudden wham do you think they just asked him like hey will you come do our uh, project graduation deal and didn't really explain to him the idea that it was supposed to be a safe <laughs> alcohol free event to where students didn't go drink and get drugs and he's he's sitting there up th- there DJing the whole time like what are these squares doing exactly. nobody's out here partying what losers party with me I'm Dennis Ray Rhodes man DJ D-R-R partying hard sipping on some Tito's what y'all got going tonight he was sipping on a lemon lime Gatorade and Tito's yeah what a stud what a guy he's the winner he's the big winner what what do you think was the first song that Dennis Ray Rhodes opened with free bird (laughs) no question (laughs) free bird gotta do it man (laughs) all right Rick good stuff as always we'll be back next week for another edition of the skinny podcast the potpourri edition for Rick Boring I'm Richard Skinner thanks for being with us as always it's presented by Joseph Chevrolet